Cool? There it is. Boom. Okay, um, so we are in this series called Grammar Faith, where we are talking about some of the kind of the, the core concepts of Christian faith, and particularly uh, words and concepts that we use a lot as Christians that maybe we don't understand. And we don't want to just define these. The reason why we called it grammar of faith is we want to know how they work. How are these things actually supposed to work in our lives? And so we've talked about all sorts of things at this point. We have talked about the Trinity, and we've talked about the Word of God, and we've talked about the incarnation and the atonement and the image of God that we'll come back to. We've talked about sin. We've talked about all these things, right? Are you enjoying this? I know that it's a lot, but I hope that some of the pieces are coming together for you because I think that we as Christians can throw around a lot of language and never either define it, and even if we define it, never talk about, okay, like, so what? So, so how does that operate in my life? So today we come to the Holy Spirit, which is, uh, <laughs> uh, which is a small topic, right? Um, this is another sort of buckle your seatbelt. Um, and there's a couple ways into a discussion of the Holy Spirit. Um, and there's two that we won't focus as much on, but there's a third that, that I've very specifically chosen, uh, or I've chosen to focus on for a very specific reason. One is you can talk about who the Holy Spirit is. How does the whole... Is the Holy Spirit a person or a force? The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is part of the persons of the Trinity. And we could go into that and how the Trinity works and what the Holy Spirit's role in all of that is. Um, uh, but we're not going to go as much into who exactly the Holy Spirit is. There's also the, the how of the Holy Spirit. Some of you maybe come from backgrounds where that's the real focus. Like, how do we engage the Holy Spirit? How do you have the Spirit? Um, how, how does all of that work and, and operate? And let's get, get into the nitty-gritty of how the Holy Spirit is meant to work in our individual lives, in the corporate life of the church. Instead, what I want to focus on, and those are great things, and they'll come up a little bit, but I just want to acknowledge that, that we're, we're not going to dive nearly into that. We need a whole sermon series um, to even begin to touch on some of that. The thing that I really want to focus on, where I think our confusion or our lack of clarity can be most addressed is by talking about um, and, and a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, sort of organized it this way, and it was very helpful to me, is to talk about the goal of the Holy Spirit. Because I think that one of the things that if you've been around church, if you've been around Christian things for a while, one of the things that can be hard about the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit's actions, like what we see the Holy Spirit do, whether it's in the scriptures or, or in the life of the church or in our experiences with church or whatever, can seem all over the place. It's just like sometimes the Spirit is making people talk in tongues, and then sometimes the Spirit is spoken of as like the one who, um, whose presence we want to be in. And sometimes people are calling out, come Holy Spirit, and then other people are like, well, the Spirit's already indwelling. And then sometimes we want the Spirit to fill us, and then there's this whole thing called the baptism, baptism of the Spirit that people disagree on. And, and sometimes the Spirit is really flashy, and sometimes the Spirit seems like sort of the quiet part. Sometimes the Spirit, right, I said this when we were talking about the Trinity, is sort of the wild cousin of like the Trinity, and like, whoa, you never know what the Spirit's going to do, and thank goodness the Father and the Son are there to like control things or whatever, right? And it's, it's all of this confusion about like, what, what is happening? Here's, here's a list of all of the things that the Spirit is said to do. The Spirit fills, uh, the Spirit guides, the Spirit heals, the Spirit can be grieved, the Spirit can be quenched. Uh, the Spirit is involved in doing miracles. The Spirit convicts. The Spirit brings boldness. The Spirit can be outraged. The Spirit is a comforter. 
the Spirit bears witness. Uh, people uh, often, um, when the Spirit comes, speak, whether that's in tongues or prophecy or preaching. The Spirit inspires. Um, the Spirit brings joy in affliction. The Spirit creates. The Spirit transforms, right? When you get to that list, and we could do a series on passages that talk about any one of those, you're like, hey, that's a lot. But I do think that there's an, if you will, there's sort of a central theme around everything the Spirit does. There's a, if you will, an organizing principle of what the Holy Spirit's goal is in our lives and in, and in the story of God. And that's really what I want to focus on today. You know, the Holy Spirit can be very divisive, right? Entire denominations are created um, according to whether this has to happen with the Spirit or that has to happen. We're not going to get into all that, but I just want to acknowledge that. I think a lot of us are confused about the Spirit, even maybe a little bit intimidated by the Spirit, right? We are, a, um, we are an American evangelical 21st century church, right? And um, the Spirit can be kind of like, there's a lot of error around the Spirit, so we kind of like we kind of put the spirit to the side a little bit because we don't want things to get too crazy and chaotic. And I can just tell you as, as a pastor of this church, like, I don't love that about our church. Like, I think we need to engage the spirit more. And I hope that even this morning is a step forward in taking some of that intimidation away and making us, um, uh, even, even making the spirit and, and the ministry of the spirit a more approachable thing for us and something that, because I think we leave a lot on the table and I think you'll hear why as we get into this. And I think, though, having said all that, I think that most of us do share some desire for more of the Spirit, right? Like, if you're a Christian, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, you're probably aware, like, man, for most of us, now some of you operate in the Spirit and are very familiar with it and stuff like that, however you would define that. But I think for a lot of us, it's like, yeah, I think if, if I had to choose, I'd want more of the Spirit, more understanding of the Spirit, more of the Spirit's operation in my life, whatever that means and whatever that looks like. Um, and so I think it's just really important to talk about. And yet at the same time, you also have this other element that the Spirit is associated with some of like, for lack of a more nuanced way to say it, just like the weirder stuff in Christianity, right? Like, ooh, that's, that's where things can get kind of weird. We'll talk about that even at the end. Okay, so what's the, goals, what's the goal of the Spirit? I won't go... Uh, uh, I loved what Tyler did last week so much, right? Like, and he just kept telling us, like, be patient, be patient. I'm going to do more of a, more of a flyover, um, not, just, not just like for the sake of time, but because I think that the Spirit's involvement in the story, unlike something like Tyler talked about last week with atonement, is, is intentionally um, uh, more spread out. And so, Spirit of God, do you know where the Spirit first shows up? Yeah, like first page, right? Um, so first page of Scripture, somehow all of these messages start on the first page of Scripture. So they're on the first page of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void. And who's there? The Spirit of God is doing what? Hovering. By the way, if you don't know this and you're like, all these people know every verse. It's like they know the first two verses. Don't be, um, don't be that impressed. Um, so the Spirit of God is, no shade on anyone. Um, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. The Spirit is present. And the Spirit is interesting in this form of, of like a dove. Um, and then the next time that the Spirit shows up, you know the next time the Spirit shows up? See, less intimidating. They don't know this part. So you're fine if you're not tracking it, right? Is when humanity is created. 
is specifically when God crafts humanity out of the dust of the ground, and then he breathes, that's the word for spirit in the Hebrew, he breathes into that dust that he had created, and, and the dust becomes a living person, becomes a living thing. So somehow the spirit is very much involved in what it means to be human. The spirit is what, the breath of God, the spirit of God is what is given to that dust. And there's something about that dust that becomes unique in, in contradistinction and uniquely in all of creation. The giving of the spirit is what you go, ooh, that's different. And that's what it means to be a human being. Now, the spirit doesn't show up a ton from there forward in the Old Testament. I'll give you a, a couple of highlights. The next time that the the spirit largely shows up is, uh, is, when the, is when the temple is being built and Bezalel um, is given the spirit. And, and actually what's interesting there is all of a sudden the spirit is given to someone. You're like, whoa, this is like the first time since Adam really had it. And it's given for this, for craftsmanship, to do work, to build something that is gonna house the presence of God. Like really interesting. The next time that, uh, that the Spirit shows up largely, or actually before that, you have a little bit of, in the story of Joseph, and this is just a flyover for people familiar enough with the Old Testament that I'm not completely confusing that. But in the story of Joseph, it's the Spirit that helps interpret dreams. Remember that in the story of Joseph when he's cast aside, he's in prison, and then the king has some dreams, and he's able to, it's said that he does that by the Spirit. So we see this sort of, with him, with Bezalel, this equipping that the Spirit does to do stuff. So there's something unique about being human, that the Spirit's uh, presence requires, and then there's an equipping that it does. There's, it, it, it helps you do stuff. The next time the Spirit shows up largely in the Old Testament, again, I'm doing a flyover, we're not going page by page, is with the prophets. The prophets are these uh, radical figures in the Old Testament who speak the words of God to the people of God. And it's said that they do this by the Spirit. Again, this, this task-oriented giving of the spirit to do certain things. And it's on behalf of God. There's this to represent God for the prophets is to receive the spirit and then speak for God. Okay. It's kind of a flyover the, of the spirit in the old Testament uh, where the spirit bursts onto the scene is really with the coming of Jesus into the story. So that's where I'm going to start my slides here is you have this now, we already talked about, when we talked about the Trinity, we talked about um, how God the Father, the Spirit, and the Son are present at Jesus' baptism. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Jesus gets baptized, right? The skies open, the Father speaks, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Spirit descends. Do you remember this? Is this ringing a bell? Yeah, um, this, is why, this is why we do series, because we hope that some of these things start to come together. This is what's said immediately after that scene. It says, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. So Jesus, after his baptism, is in some sense freshly filled by the Spirit. And then you have this language of being led by the Spirit. So that filling isn't just like he has new superpowers, but, but that there's also this thing that the Spirit is doing in leadership and guidance of Jesus. What's amazing here is, do you know what the Spirit is leading him into? It says it. Yeah, isn't that interesting? The Spirit leads him to be tempted by the devil. So the Spirit's not only, always going to lead you into easy stuff. 
Let that just be said, right? The spirit isn't leading him away from harm's way. It's leading him into harm's way. There's a very specific reason why Jesus has to go through the temptation. Another sermon for another day. Later, after all of this happens, it says, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Hopefully you see some of even those strands from the Old Testament coming together. There's some sense in which the uniqueness of who Jesus is. You could say sort of the the new creation work that God is doing in the world requires Jesus to have a fullness of the spirit, much like the first human being. So there's a fullness of the spirit there. But that fullness is also in equipping to do stuff. There's specific tasks. He's got to stand up to the temptations of the enemy. He's got to be a different sort of person. And so the spirit has to be present to do that. And then when he, when he successfully go, goes through the temptation, the spirit sort of sends him back out to keep doing ministry, to keep doing things that God wants him to do, okay? Again, we're trying to get to what's the goal of the Holy Spirit? What's the Holy Spirit's purpose? Next slide. John talks about this, uh, another gospel writer. So that was Luke's account of the life of Jesus. In John's account of the life of Jesus, he says this very interesting phrase. He says, for the one, this is John 3, 34, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he does not give the spirit sparingly, which is weirdly worded. So I put the notes. These are the notes from the New English Translation, the Net Bible, which I would highly recommend to everyone. Wonderful. We use the ESV translation uh, because it's a little bit easier to understand, but the Net Bible is like a great study um, study tool. That's for the Bible nerds among us. But um, I put the notes from that. So for the one whom God has sent, that's Jesus, that is Christ. See that there, that first footnote? So he's talking about Jesus. The, so Jesus speaks the words of God. For God, that's God the Father, does not give the Spirit sparingly. Go down to this note. Literally, for not by measure does God the Father give the Spirit It's an idiom, in other words, a phrase, like, uh, you know, random phrases that we would use that make no sense on the face of it, but that if you understand the context, makes sense. Like, for instance, peacock happy. Um, (laughs) So in in this, uh, this is is an old uh, Jewish text. It states, the Holy Spirit rested on the prophets by measure. In other words, God gave them as much as they needed, as the prophets needed, in order to do what God asked them to do. Jesus is contrasted to this, the spirit rests upon him without measure. And in fact, some of your translations, if you look at this, it'll say that God gives Jesus the spirit without measure. Jesus is contrasted to this, the spirit rests upon him without measure. So Jesus, who we've talked a lot about in this series, and I hope you, you have some sense of the uniqueness of who Jesus is, the son of God, come to accomplish redemption in the world, that one of the things that most distinguishes him is this fullness of the spirit that he has the spirit and whatever the spirit is supposed to do jesus has it without measure i want you to hold on to that thought we'll return to it when we talked about the trinity we talked about this sort of schema for understanding the trinity go to that next slide God the Father authors salvation. God the Son accomplishes salvation. God the Spirit applies salvation. We see that constant rhythm, that it's for God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. And then we could say that whoever 
believes in him should not perish, but it should have eternal life, which by the way, elsewhere, the Holy Spirit is associated with that eternal life, not as life after death, so much as life as one who has brought into relationship with God. And so even in John 3, 16, most familiar passage in the whole Bible, you have this, this basic setup. It's God who loved the world and authored our salvation. It's the son who was sent to accomplish it, but then the spirit applies what Jesus had accomplished and gives us all the goodies, gives us the gifts, gives us the, the, the accomplishment, gives us the rewards of Jesus's actions, okay? Hopefully that sounds familiar. Keep taking your notes. I love when people are scribbling away. Okay, I'm building, I'm building, I'm building. We're going somewhere. Okay, uh, let me go to two passages. I think that these are the two clearest passages in the entire New Testament about the Holy Spirit. One are Jesus's words in John 14 that sound like this. This is Jesus's last conversation with his disciples before he's crucified. And right into, injected into that um, are these really interesting words about the Holy Spirit. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper a helper, he's talking about the spirit, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you, check this out, and will now be in you. You've been around the spirit. You've watched the spirit do stuff, right? Maybe they've had the spirit measured to them. It's, it's been among them. They, they, they've, got, they've tasted it, but now the spirit will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How will he come to them? By sending the Spirit. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. A couple concepts here. The Spirit somehow makes Jesus present to us. Doesn't leave us as orphans. So there's this idea of, of the spirit brings the presence of God. But here you hear again that it's deeply associated with also doing the stuff that God wants us to do. There's also this indwelling part. The spirit's gonna get inside of us now in a way that it was only outside of us before, which is wild. And I would imagine is Jesus' attempt to explain a reality that's probably well beyond our, our ability to conceive what in the world he's talking about. But he's like, it's been out there and now it's gonna be in here, okay? That's not, so we hear some themes there presence of God, equipping to do stuff he wants us to do, and then this, this inner work that the Spirit does. Okay, next one. John 8. This is what Brendan uh, read for us. You, however, uh, are debtors not to the flesh, but uh, you, however, not, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Keep going. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, that's that inner work, right? There's stuff that goes on inside of us by the spirit, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Hopefully, if, if you're listening closely, and I know this is, a, this is a huge dump of scripture, but if you're listening closely, constantly the spirit is associated with our identity as children of God. That comes up again and again and again and again. Children get the spirit, children get the spirit. Those who have the spirit are children. Um, 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. There it is. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit, I love it. This is one of my favorite, this verse right here, 16. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. One of the things that the spirit of God does in the life of a believer is it tells you, yeah, you're really a kid. You're really God's kid. That's really what you are. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and then just this little proviso at the end, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, right? The spirit doesn't always lead us into ease. It often leads us into suffering because that's where its work is done. We hear that theme again and again. Okay, just a couple more. Next, uh, just scattershot. The angel answered him and said to her, um, this is talking to Mary, right? We're about to get to Christmas. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy, uh, the holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Acts 1.8, this is Jesus promising his disciples the Holy Spirit. He says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. There's that speaking thing again, right? Spirit comes and people say stuff. First uh, Thessalonians 1.5, this is one of Paul's letters. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. What's the word that shows up in all three of those? Play a game of highlights. Power, good. Power, power, power. The Spirit is associated with power. Okay, let's try and put all this together. The Holy Spirit is presence plus power plus life. These are the three words that are most often associated with the Spirit's work. You have the presence of God that the Spirit is deeply associated with. You have power that the Spirit brings. And then you have this concept that shows up in all the passages that you probably didn't hear, especially if you're familiar with the Bible. And I didn't misspeak. Especially if you're familiar with the Bible, you probably didn't even hear how many times, particularly Jesus, talks about how the Spirit brings life, 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 life. If I live, you will live. If you have the Spirit, you have life. The Spirit brings life. There's all of this mention of life. And the concept of life in the New Testament is a very specific way of talking about our, our, inner, our inner world whether we are spiritually dead or spiritually alive, is, it, is maybe the massive category of what Jesus comes and does. And it says that the spirit is the one who brings that spiritual aliveness. So to organize some of this, the presence of God by the spirit is relational. It's talking about our relationship with God. That's, that's really the emphasis there. To be in relationship is to be in one's presence. Right? We can't be in relationship with God if we're never in his presence. Why? Because that's not how relationship works. Right? Like, yes, there's such thing as long-distance relationship, but if that relationship doesn't at some point get proximate, and if there isn't presence there, you don't have much of a relationship for very long. So this is a relational category. The category of power is the category of doing and representing God in the world and doing the stuff that God wants us to do. And I have these subheadings under here because this is, you've probably heard of the gifts of the Spirit, right? Anybody heard of the right, concept you're familiar with? The gifts of the Spirit, teaching and administration and mercy and prophecy and all of these things that there's the gifts of the Spirit. We could do a whole sermon series on that, but that's what this 
talking about is that the spirit comes into our life, mediates the presence of God, puts us into the presence of God in some sense, however that works. Uh, it's all a little bit mysterious, but it also brings power to us to help us do the stuff that God wants to do. This is what we saw him doing with, with Bezalel when he was building the temple. This is what we saw him doing with the prophets. This is even what he saw him doing with Jesus, is that there's this power that comes. But then there's also this category of life, that there's this spiritual vitality, pun intended, right? Like this spirit-infused vitality. Instead of deadness inside, instead of um, a, a sort of sleepiness of heart spiritually, there's this aliveness that the spirit brings such that we begin in some sense to be formed into the people that God wants us to be from the inside out. There's this inner transformation that's happening. There's this character formation. This is the concept of the fruit of the spirit. Maybe you're familiar with that passage. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, right? Um, that's the fruit of the spirit, that the spirit also brings an inner transformation, inner, um, an inner character formation that makes us more into who God intended us to be. Character formation, obedience to what God has asked of us, a new identity as we're brought into the family, right? If, if spirit bears witness with your spirit. Okay. Hopefully this is where it all comes together for you. Go to the next slide, Mike. Our very own Pastor Jalen, a few weeks back, Define the image of God. What does it mean to be in the image of God? Maybe that's a concept that you've heard before outside of church. But there's a very specific biblical definition to what it means to be made in the image of God. To be made in the image of God is one, to be in unique relationship with God. Two, to have the responsibility to represent God in the world, and three, to be in some sense like God in who we actually are. Right? The, ancient the ancient context of this idea of image is, I have a kingdom, um, and as that, right, my kingdom is this stage or whatever, and as I advance my kingdom, maybe to each section of these chairs, you can picture it, in the ancient world, in order for, right, no Zoom calls, um, no network television news at night or whatever, the way that I would actually rule those places is I would send a representative to that place who is in relationship with me, right? These were often children of the, of the sovereign. You would send a, someone who is in relationship with you to represent you, to do stuff that you needed to, to be done, but also to be the sort of ruler that you are. And that could look like great strength, that could look like great humility, whatever it was, there needs to be a resemblance of that ruler. Because if that person didn't do what you asked them to do, didn't represent you well, they, weren't a, they, they shouldn't have been sent. If they're unlike you, they shouldn't have been sent. If they're not in relationship with you, you don't even know who this person is, they shouldn't have been sent. Every single version of that dynamic of a sovereign sending someone into these different places, whether that's, a, whether that's a literal person. Sometimes this was even just a statue, right? We have Old Testament stories of like, uh, who was it? Nebuchadnezzar, who would make these statues. And guess what these statues would do? They would resemble the sovereign. They would represent that sovereign's rule. And they were sent there as, as in some sense, relationally related to that person to say, Nebuchadnezzar rules here. So bow to me. 
And this thing, this statue was as good as Nebuchadnezzar being physically present there. And so when Daniel and his friends don't bow to it, guess what happens? They get thrown in jail because that thing represented the sovereign. You know what all those were called? Whether it was the kids of the sovereign, whether it was statues, they were called images. Those were images of this person. So to be in the image of God is to be in relationship with God. We're his kids. To represent God, to do the stuff that God actually wants us to do in the world. And then to resemble God, to be in some sense like God. That's what the image is. So guess what the Spirit does? The Spirit brings us back into relationship with God, makes God physically present with us, gives us the opportunity for actual relationship. And again, the New Testament is at pains to say, like even in that one passage, Jesus says, I won't leave you alone, I'll come to you. But he also says, I'll send the Spirit. And so which is it, Jesus? And to have the Spirit is to have Jesus present. The answer is yes, right? Like Jesus doesn't, doesn't feel like he has to put too fine a point on it. The Spirit is the one who makes God present, who restores that relationship. The Spirit is also the one who equips us to represent God in the world, to do the stuff that God wants done in the world. The Spirit gives us that power. That's why power is often associated with the Spirit. The Spirit is also the means by which God does this inner work of transformation to take us from people who do not resemble him to being people who increasingly resemble him. That's that inner work of transformation. All to say, the goal of the Holy Spirit is to restore the image of God in us. That's the singular goal of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit exists to do, to restore the image of God. But here's the thing. The image of God is so broken in us, as Jalen preached a few weeks back, that the work of the Spirit isn't just about making God physically present to us, isn't just about equipping us to do the stuff God wants us to do, isn't just about inner transformation. And this is where the church can go awry, is we prioritize one of those to the exclusion of the others. Well, if you really had the Spirit, you would have deep relationship with God and you would just love to be in his presence. And all of that is true, right? But if it's to the exclusion of, yeah, but we're also now God's representatives in the world who are supposed to be doing stuff, who are supposed to be opening our mouths and proclaiming the good news of the gospel and then setting our hands to putting the world right in all the ways that it's gone wrong. But if all of that is to the exclusion of, so what's with you and your quiet time and needing to be with God? Like, let's just do stuff. Or if we emphasize, yeah, the Spirit of God transforms our character and makes us a certain sort of person and, and does work inside of us to create a, in us a heart that loves and is joy. And it's like, yeah, but does that actually move you to other people? Does that actually move you to actual relationship with God? Or is, your, is the work of the Spirit just something that you passively receive without ever relating to the one who's doing that work? Do you see how we don't want to exclude it? This happened super early on in the church. This is what the whole letter to the first Corinthians was about. They had the power of the spirit, like, like wild going on for them. Like that, like that kind of stuff would happen, right? Like they had, the people were speaking in tongues. People were doing prophecy. Like it was wild. And Paul says, here's how you do that. Cause that's really important. First Corinthians 12, first Corinthians 14. You know what first Corinthians 13 is? If you've ever been to a Christian wedding, you know what 1 Corinthians 13 is. What is it? 
love, 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 without love, without love. You know what he's saying? He's saying the power of the Spirit without the kind of life that the Spirit brings is actually not just impoverished, it's dangerous because you're quenching the Spirit in certain areas in order to embrace the Spirit in others. And he says that's, that's not what the work of the Spirit is to do. It's this holistic reforming work in us, bringing back relationship and all of these things. All right, let's go back to Jesus. Mike, go to, uh, go to that second slide. So here's one of the wild things about Jesus. For the one whom God has sent, that's Christ, right? So Jesus speaks the words of God, for Jesus has the Spirit without measure. So one of the things this means about the Holy Spirit is that it means that the primary way that Jesus accomplished what he accomplished was not by occasionally flipping the divine switch hidden under his cloak or whatever. Jesus does, you can go through all the gospels and see again and again, the miracles are done by the Spirit. Jesus, Jesus himself even was raised by the Spirit, right? Jesus did what he did because he had the Spirit without measure. In other words, Jesus, fully God and fully human, didn't sometimes do human stuff and then every now and then did a laser light show to sort of reveal himself as divine. He was always the two together, but the primary means by which, the source of what he did, amazingly, was the fullness of the Spirit indwelling within him. Jesus did what he did as the first true human being, in other words, because he had the Spirit without measure. Because here's the difference between us and Jesus. Don't you say, well, we have the Spirit too. Yes, we have the Spirit too. But you know what we have? We also have resistance to the Spirit within us that Jesus didn't have. We also, I, I heard this week that, uh, that obedience is the distance between God speaking and us acting. Obedience is the, difference, the distance between God speaking and us acting. Jesus' was like this. Jesus' obedience to the Father was immediate. He only saw what he what he watched the father doing, and he would do it immediately. And so that spirit, right? You hear in that, the power of the spirit. Also the life of the spirit. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm a fully transformed human being because there's no resistance to the spirit within me. And so the spirit is fully able to renew me, to transform me. Not that he needed to be taken from something bad to something good, but over time, right? This is why the, the New Testament doesn't, isn't unafraid to say, yeah, Jesus had to grow and mature, but he was growing and maturing with a fullness of the spirit. So he became the exact imprint of the father, to use language used elsewhere in the New Testament. He was exactly who God was, right? That resemblance was a perfect resemblance. Isn't that amazing? And yet the disciples again and again say, Jesus, show us the father. And he says, if you see me, you've seen the father. Why? Not because, oh, I got a little divinity in me. It's because I'm a human being who doesn't at, in any meaningful way resist the spirit. I'm full of the Spirit. And Jesus came not simply to be one of one, but to bring many brothers and sisters into that reality. Not as perfectly as him, right? Like, let's not get our theology wacky here, because there's always going to be sin this side of our full transformation one day. 
But Jesus gives the spirit such that we can experience all these things, really know God and relate to him. Really be equipped to do stuff we couldn't and wouldn't want to otherwise do in order to represent him. And then slowly over time, the New Testament again is not unembarrassed to say that the goal of the walk of faith is Christ-likeness, resemblance. Other people should look at us and say, I, I see a little bit of Jesus. I see that. Man, I read the New Testament. It's like, oh, I've been treated that way. We're going to talk a lot about this, by the way, at Men's Retreat. This is a great little preview for Men's Retreat. Is the idea of, of resemblance and imitation that we're made to imitate God and in a wild way to imitate each other insofar as we imitate God. So what does this mean, right? Like, okay, so if that's what the Spirit is meant to do. One, the last thing in the world we should do is resist that and be intimidated by it. Say, oh, I don't really want what the Spirit provides because it could get a little crazy. By the way, this is, a, this is a working theory. Uh, again, a friend of mine, a uh, pastor friend of mine, um, was the first one to ever say this. I ran it by rage, so I feel okay. Um, the reason why the Spirit's work can look a little wild sometimes is because at the end of the day, the Spirit is making us normal again. And we are, we are more abnormal than we realize. The, the biggest misunderstanding of the Spirit is that the Spirit either wants to make us something superhuman I get the spirit, right? This is what First Corinthians uh, church was all about. We have power now. We're superhuman. We can dominate the world. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, 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 no. Yes, you have some things that you can do now, but there's also to be that character formation, right? And so it's not to be superhuman. It's also not to be something other than human. As though if you get a lot of the spirit, you're going you're gonna to be one weird person, right? And sometimes that's how we judge it. Is like, who has the spirit? You look around a room, you say, who's acting the weirdest? Oh, they probably have the spirit, right? That's not, here's what I'll say. That's not entirely inaccurate because I think, and the analogy that, that this friend of mine uses is he says, if you've ever been through counseling and you're, and you're processing some, some significant way in which you have shaped yourself around abnormality, like he wouldn't, I'm not even saying his name, so surely he won't mind me saying, but he was diagnosed with PTSD for various things. And he said, my first sessions sitting with my counselor were, were wild, sobbing, couldn't even get control of myself because I was realizing how abnormally I had fitted myself to these realities in my life. And now my counseling looks, looks I weep still, there are times where certain revelations come and they overwhelm me. But in general, that healing process has become more incorporated into my personality as now is something that I feel like I have more agency over. It's a little like what the Spirit does. Comes into our life and it can be overwhelming. And some of you I know, because y'all just don't want to admit it, um, I've had these experiences. I've had wild experiences with the Spirit. And I know some of you have. Um, and that's great. Right? And gosh, could we get to a place where we don't have to be embarrassed by that? Because when the Spirit first comes and reveals to us how abnormally we've been relating to God, how abnormally we've been, we've been misrepresenting him, how much we don't resemble him, that can be an overwhelming thing and can look a little bit messy and sloppy, right? In general, the work of the Spirit, if you look at the New Testament, is to look orderly. But there's also absolutely a category in the New Testament for sometimes things get a little wild, and that's okay. What we have to be careful of is not normalizing that wildness as though 
the spirit is only present if things get crazy because much like that counseling, there's really powerful counseling sessions that you could go through where you get some of the biggest insights and some of the biggest jumps in your healing. And it didn't look as emotionally overwhelming as it was way back when, right? How do you know the spirit's present? Are people relating to God? How do you know the spirit's present? Are they doing the stuff that God has called them to do? How do you know the spirit's present? Are people resembling God? Is there actually love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, just emanating from, from that individual person and from the room? That's how we judge the presence of God. Not by any one of those things in isolation. And if it gets a little crazy, that's okay, right? And the New Testament has ways of, of bringing that in and making sure that there's order in the community. But we've got to make space for, guys, if we're as abnormal as the scriptures say we are, getting back to normality might be a little bit messy and that's okay. And why would we resist that? Why would we stay in abnormality, right? If ultimately bearing the image of God is what we are created for, that's normal, okay? And so what the spirit is, is meant to do is not make us superhuman, not make us something other than human. It's to finally make us human. And if, if the air we're breathing is abnormal, if the way that we're going about this is abnormal, then having that turned upside down, we might have to submit ourselves to some emotion, <laughs> might have to submit ourselves to some things that feel a little bit out of our control. So the thing that I want to leave you with is what do, what do we do in response to this? One of, one of my favorite things that the New Testament says is it says, so to the spirit, so to the spirit, right? That, that agrarian image. The spirit is soil. Put, put the seed of your life into that soil. Don't sow to the flesh. Because from the flesh, all you get is, is death. All you get is like nothing's growing. You sow to the spirit and stuff starts to burst through the soil. This is simple but profound, right? What this is saying is you've got to put yourself in places where the spirit is more likely to be able to do the stuff that it's seeking to do in your life. This means it's really important to have something in your life where you relate to God directly. Because if you do, the Spirit's going to show up in that place and say, yes, Jesus so desperately wants to manifest himself to you. A lot of us feel like, I've never experienced the presence of God. It takes some discipline. It takes some sowing. It's agrarian. It takes showing up again and again. It takes tending to that. It takes discipline, right? Like, that's why we're unafraid of that word. But if you sow to that, all of a sudden what could burst through is like, oh yeah, I feel like, I feel like the scriptures are coming alive more to me. I feel like I can feel God's comfort. I feel like when I pray that, that wisdom suddenly pops up. It feels like when I'm desperate and I lament and I call out to God, like I'm, I'm no longer just screaming at the ceiling. I feel like there's something. Yeah, the spirit's working. You're sowing to the spirit in that relational aspect of who the spirit is. That, that power part, right? Like if you want to see God use you and stir up those gifts, you got to find a way to serve. You got to find a way to go out in the world and say, I think that maybe this is the kind of thing that God has asked me to do. Go make sandwiches, give to interfaith rise, right? Like serve at young lives, do whatever and watch how the spirit shows up and you go, I'm not that good. I don't have that much giftedness. That's more than the sum of my parts. Yeah. Cause the spirit is now operating and gifting you and doing stuff and making you a representative of God in the world. Same way with the resemble right? Like if you want inner transformation and character, you know what you got to do? You got to be around some people who demonstrate the fruit of the spirit. But instead, what do we do? We sow everywhere else. Instagram, maybe another TikTok video 
will manifest the presence of God to me. Maybe another TikTok will make me, you know, effective in the purposes of God, right? Right? I'm just as liable to this, right? Like I can have more discipline in my life in being a really good sports fan than I do in allowing the spirit to work in my life. Why? Because <laughs> we need the image of God restored in us so badly. But every step in that direction, hear what I'm saying? This isn't a guilt trip. This is yo. Every step in that direction is going to be rewarded by the presence of the Spirit in your life and by the power of the Spirit in your life and by the life that uniquely is brought. Anybody experience this? You take a few steps. I want to see hands. Has anybody experienced you take a few steps in the direction of sowing to the Spirit and you go, oh yeah, there's something there. Anybody ever experienced that? Right? Can we just bear witness with one another and say, Let's want more of the Spirit. Let's hunger for more of the Spirit. And if it gets a little weird, that's okay. But you know what my guess is? It's not going to get a little weird. It's going to feel like, man, God is more present here. And I'm better able to relate to God. And God is doing more through our community. And God is forming our community into a different sort of person. Yeah, it might be weird, but it's only weird by the bizarre standards that we've accepted as normal. As though this is all there is to life. Yearn for the Spirit. Constantly be being filled by the Spirit. Do you hear the invitation in that? And we leave it on the table for such lesser things. Let's be people of the Spirit. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this call. Thank you for this invitation to finally be human. And God, this will never be as perfect as it was manifest in Jesus. But thank you that Jesus gave us the Spirit so that we might have a little bit of hope to take steps forward to experience more of who you've created us to be. So Holy Spirit, we do. We, we invite your work. Wherever you have experienced resistance, whether in our lives individually or even in this church corporately, Holy Spirit, we are willing to allow you to break that barrier so that we can get more of you, so that we can encounter Jesus more and be more formed into the people that you would have us be. So Holy Spirit, whatever that looks like, I pray that even now as we come to this table that you will begin to do things within us. Yeah, that, that might begin to break down some barriers that we've unnecessarily put up in front of these things. God, there's so much misunderstanding. There's so much divisiveness around your spirit and I just can't help but think that's probably the thing that grieves your spirit the most. <laughs> that Christians are willing to divide over, over the greatest gift that we've ever been given. Lord, help us to resist that and to have a unity even among us, even if there's difference in how we understand these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.